Future of Finance podcast, where finance finds its future. Hello, I'm Dominic Hobson, co-founder of Future of Finance. My guest today is Michael Shawlock, CEO and co-founder of Fireblocks, which was set up with the express purpose of bringing to the digital asset markets the level of cybersecurity institutional investors have come to accept in the traditional financial markets. And that is the subject of our conversation today. Uh, Michael, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Dominic, for having me. Now, we catch you coming fresh from having completed your Series C funding. You've raised $133 million. Uh, it's bringing your total uh, investment to $179 million. It's come not just from VCs this time, but from a major uh, global custodian bank in the shape of BNY Mellon, who is taking a, a strategic interest in your, in your business. Now, that fact alone suggests that digital assets are going uh, mainstream. And if digital assets are going mainstream, Fireblocks finds itself uh, sitting on top of a volcano. What does it feel like to be sitting on top of a volcano? Well, I think it's a... It's, a, it's definitely an exciting moment for us and a, definitely an exciting uh, moment for me as a CEO and co-founder of the company. Uh, you know, it's, a, it, it's definitely a very good problems to have still like, you know, uh, sitting on top of a volcano means that we need to be very committed to the scale and to uh, the rapid expansion that is currently occurring in the market and our ability to really serve those clients, to serve, uh, to, to, to make sure that the offerings that we have, the offering that we have is applicable to, to the new players that are entering the market. And it's good 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 problems to have. Those, those are still uh, the problems that uh, we are executing and continue to execute against. Now, as I say, the involvement of BNY Mellon is in itself very interesting. Can I ask you what they're expecting in return for taking the strategic stake in your business? So I think the, the, the main thing about the Bank of New York Mellon is that uh, they are definitely the f- biggest bank right now that is strategically moving into this space in, in high velocity. Um, I mean, we've been working with them for about uh, three years or so uh, on, uh, on, uh, on the, the initiative. So it's very exciting moments for us that uh, it's coming to market. Of course, they sort of announced their plans about a month ago. They mobilized a huge amount of people internally uh, and hired a lot of people uh, from the industry to basically focus on this initiative. For us, and, and I think for the industry, basically the combination and the partnership between Fireblocks and, um, and Bank of New York Mellon is really the best of both worlds, right? It's really the most trusted brand that been there for the last you know, 200 something years, right? Coming together with the best of breed technology and the most, I think, uh, uh, respectful technology player in the digital asset market. And I think that uh, to your point earlier, the combination of the two will really create an infrastructure that uh, not only that the, the existing market, the existing traditional market participants can basically jump in and participate in this market, but they will also be able to participate in this market in the best uh, in the best way possible, having access to the most advanced and the most secure technology. And also, you know, as Fireblocks, our fame to claim is to really provide this open access, you know, clearly with the restrictions that Bonnie has, but really to provide as much uh, uh, advanced technology and invest offerings as 
if possible from a compliance standpoint. And what would you say to those many people who would argue that this is the beginning of a, a relationship which ends with BNY Mellon acquiring your business? Yeah, I think that uh, to be honest, so um, just ju just to double down on the or, or explain the, the the composition of the round, right? Most of the funding in this round is actually coming from the biggest VCs and, and fintech investors, so both Cotto Management, uh, Revit Capital, Stripes, and so on. Um, for the guys that are not familiar with Cotto, they are backing, you know, PayPal, Square. Um, you know, Alipay, some of the biggest and most dominant fintech players. Clearly, the amount of funding that came in this round, uh, the most important aspect here is that it actually will allow us to remain independent. You know, it really puts the valuation and the amount of funding internally for the company that we can really optimize for the long run. We can build the infrastructure. People can rely on the fact that the in infrastructure is going to be there. And whether you are a client of Bonnie, you know, you're in the same bucket of participating and competing with Bonnie, or uh, you're a fintech vendor or a crypto native, you can rely on the fact that if you're using Fireblocks and infrastructure, we're going to be there for the foreseeable future as independent vendor. Yeah. Now, as you said, you started talking to BNY Mellon three years ago, which is not long after you set the business up. So you saw this institutional grade cybersecurity opportunity uh, in cryptocurrencies, you know, long before most people then at that time, it was mainly a, a retail investing activity. So here we are four years later, what, what assurance can you offer institutional investors in the area of cybersecurity? So I think that one of the people, it's a bit strange that uh, someone who basically sell, sell, sells the cybersecurity offering, uh, the, the most secure offering in this space saying that there is no silver bullet right, in, uh, in cybersecurity. And I'm saying it as someone who's been, uh, I think, a veteran of the cybersecurity industry for the last 20 years. Uh, and uh, the idea behind our offering is really a multi-layer uh, approach of how to protect the asset, how to protect the assets from uh, external hackers, how to protect the, the assets from insider threat, and how to protect uh, it from even errors, technology errors or operational errors, right? The, the Fireblocks technology and the implementation that we are putting in place with the biggest banks, including uh, the ones that uh, we, are, we are working with right now, really sort of guarantees that there, there is a multi-layer uh, security uh, protocol systems and technologies that are best of breed. And through a series of penetration testing, through a series of code audits, through a series of a security architecture review sort of guaranteed that this is the best approach to protect uh, this asset class. And, lo and, and last but not least, eventually all those layers were evaluated by, by leading you know, AAA insurance providers. And we as Fireblocks, we have insurance capacity we carry ourselves. And also our customers can actually on the back of using our technology, obtain direct uh, insurance capacity on that. Mm -hmm. Now the digital asset, to safekeeping itself is quite a technical subject, uh, but clearly the methods of securing digital assets uh, from being stolen by hackers have evolved very considerably in recent years. Could you just run us quickly through the story from that first generation of, of solutions, the old cold storage and the multi-sig, the HSM, which was the leading thing at one time. Can you, can you talk us through the story to the current generation and, and explain a little what's been driving those, those changes from one type of uh, uh, security to another? Yeah, of course. So um, 
in the beginning, right, people had to be to solve probably the most important issue around the security of those assets. Uh, the first one of them was uh, the ability to protect the, the private key, right? Because the, the ownership on the private key is really what determines uh, the security or the security that you have on the account. Um, the initial attempts, or it wasn't attempt, but the initial approaches were, were really to use HSMs and, and, and multi-sig solutions. And they were basically invented back then in 2012. And although 2012 was uh, less than 10 years ago, in, in crypto, we always uh, joke that uh, this is basically dog years, right? So it's almost 70 years uh, old yeah. uh, technology. And uh, the, the, the deficiencies over there were twofold. The first one, we only had Bitcoin back then. So this technology, multi-sig technology with HSM works well for Bitcoin. It doesn't really work well for the newer blockchains like Ethereum, like Polkadot, like uh, some of the more uh, advanced uh, blockchains that are currently available. And the second issue that, that is actually uh, exists is uh, that they don't provide the um, ability to quickly interact with the asset class, right? So, so they were created for a buy and hold period, right? When people were buying Bitcoin for $100 and were waiting for that to appreciate. And over the, over the years, uh, of course, like, you know, the, the market have moved into a much more transactional, high velocity type of activity with a lot of trading. And I think where the future is, is clearly even, you know, more, more of that, right? Around payment use case, around remittance use case, around uh, security tokens and so on, right? So the multi-sig HSM technology is not, 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 not capable of, of, of applying that to this asset class. And for that, basically a new form of technology was created. It is called multi-party computation or MPC. It's much more flexible. Uh, it's similar to multi-sig in the sense that it disintermediates or basically removes a single point of failure and creates a decentralized security mode in which even if one endpoint or one server or one individual is compromised, they cannot compromise the entire system. Uh, but the MPC technology is just more capable from an operational standpoint to deal with all the blockchains and also to be and and you know and and our ability to basically merge this merge this with a trusted execution, which is a more flexible form of HSM, is allowing you to really interact with the coins with the asset class in high velocity. You know, in the last thirty days, we've done over one hundred and. $10 billion of uh, transactions that were issued through our infrastructure across north to 600,000 know, individual transactions. So you cannot do it with basically multi-sig and HSMs. Mm -hmm. Now, one of, one of the things you, you talk about, uh, about your MPC model, um, you know, you've still got private keys, you've still got APIs moving data around, you've still got a, a need for addresses. And, and I guess digital assets have to be delivered to a new address when a, when a transaction takes place, much the same way as a conventional payment or, or securities transaction has to be delivered. Um, but one of the things you've said is that, is that you eliminate the need for deposit addresses. Can you explain that to our audience? Yeah, so um, one of the, the second challenge, by the way, from a security standpoint, and this is very non-trivial for people that are coming from uh, the traditional financial state, uh, space, is that the blockchain technology is sort of open, right? So unlike, uh, unlike uh, in the traditional space that uh, uh, it's a closed system and basically 
every account can be identified by some kind of alpha, you know, a, a very clearly understood alphanumeric sequence, like, you know, CTUS slash, you know, uh, Palo Alto slash whatever branch number, and then the, 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 account, uh, the account beneficiary in cryptocurrency, this is just a random number, right? This is basically just a random long streak that identifies the what on the other side. Now, and this is basically the public key. So in order to make a transaction, someone is the, the, the recipient need to send the public key, which is again, a random number to the sender. If the sender, if basically that process is spoofed, right? The, there is a hacker that is sending, standing in the middle of the transaction, or even there is the, the sender just made one error, right? In terms of uh, putting zero instead of one, right? That transaction is not going to end up in, uh, in the uh, destination uh, wallet. And the main issue is that there is no recourse and transactions are being settled immediately, right? So it's not that you can call Citibank or you can call Swift and tell them, hey, uh, you know, re reverse my transaction, right? So what Fireblocks created is the Fireblocks network that is basically an authentication layer. It's a messaging layer. It's, you know, people describe it as Swift for crypto. But effectively, that eliminates or secures basically the, 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 those transactions. And you actually, as a sender, you don't need to basically obtain the deposit address from the recipient. You have a directory. Uh, the directory, there are, you know, it can be, you can be public in the directory, you can be private in the directory. But eventually, you have a directory and you basically click on the recipient, you push send, and it guaranteed to you that the transaction will go uh, through. To the receive, receiving wallet, and one of the most interesting facts over there is that there is also even like an ENO insurance that uh, protects the technology to do that. Mm -hmm. So in a, in a way, we're replacing um, bit codes and IBAN numbers with these random numbers, which you access through a directory, right? Yeah. Okay. Now these digital assets are going to have to be serviced as well as as custody. You're going to have to pay transaction fees to, to brokers and others custodians, you're going to have to, some some cases, collect income on these on these assets. Do they create a fresh type of uh, vulnerability or is that solved by the same MPC technology you've described? Well, it's mostly solved, it's mostly solved at, the, at the basic level. The, the servicing, right, is, uh, is solved by the same technology because at the end of the day, the servicing of uh, interacting with a smart contract, you know, issuing... Uh, uh, corporate um, um, uh, corporate actions on programmable uh, instruments uh, is also solved by by MPC and the interaction. Still, there are still um, areas that need to be covered. For example, when the smart contract is being programmed, it's critical to make sure that uh, it's being programmed. Uh, uh, properly, and uh, there are no vulnerabilities in the smart contract. But at least the access from the servicing entity is secured. Now, obviously, the original purpose of a blockchain was was a trustless network. You would be trading anonymously. Are these uh, institutional networks going to be closed systems? And, and in that case, are we going to get questions of identity coming up? You know, do people want to know who they who they are dealing with? And if they do want to know who they're dealing with, how do you do that? Are you using two-factor authentication or biometrics or the digital, digital identities have some role to play here? So 
Uh, it's a very, very good question. I think that uh, we will see how things evolve in the... I, I think there is sort of like a midterm and a long term here. But in essence, this technology, no matter how much we would institutionalize it from a compliance standpoint, it's an open technology, right? So, um, and, and, and I think the beauty of this technology is that eventually you will have people that are individuals that can interact with the asset class and they can do it from their own self-custodied ledger nano. And you will have huge pension funds that will basically access this technology through, you know, the most traditional institutions like Bank of New York Mellon. And on the long run, uh, I think that the regulatory frameworks will allow the later, right, the banks eventually to, in some shape or form, to interact with uh, with uh, the the individuals, right. Um, the main questions are eventually, I mean, there, there are two main questions that come in the form of identity. The first one is credit, right? Are we able to create some kind of a credit system over there that is based on identity, right? And the second aspect is really AML, uh, BSA, right? That, of course, like, it's not only, I think, that the, the idea behind what the regulators want, or maybe like, you know, the regulators trying to enforce, but, you know, personally, I don't want my services or I don't want people that I service to provide services for, you know, anti-money laundering, you know, terrorist financing and all the bad stuff that in, in the earlier parts of my career, I was, you know, working for law enforcement agencies and intelligence agencies. I think that, you know, definitely uh, to be, to protect against those activities is critical, right? So um, identities are a big part of it. I think that part of what the Fireblocks network provides is essentially, a, a, and it's it's an open network, but at least it does gives an identity and the validations that the people that you interact with are compliant. Every participant in that network defines his own sub network, and the sub basically it can both extend it to, to people that are not currently in the network, but it can also determine what are the, the what is the subset of institutions that from a compliance and and the counterparty risk standpoint they're willing to interact with. I think that you know providing this flexibility and providing this offering is critical, but I do think that identity is going to play a major part in this, not only for the compliance reasons, but most importantly for the ability to create a, um, a more, uh, you know, a, a more advanced services in the form of credit and lending. So you think we can we can maintain open networks, but still keep uh, financial criminals out of the network without closing the network? Is that right? Well, I mean, I think that financial criminals will always be there, right? I think that the main question is how we can gate them and how we can basically uh, make sure that. Uh, their ability to propagate into the mainstream is confined. I think that some of the solutions that, that uh, are proposed today actually are not going to provide that kind of service. And I'm talking about it actually with my previous hat, right, of creating technologies like this. Um, you know, what we're seeing here, the transformation that we're seeing here into a much more anonymized system We've already seen that in other areas, for example, you know, internet communication, you know, mobile, mobile messaging, right? It's it like the battle between FBI and, uh, and Apple is, you know, one of the most uh, 
was one one of the most public battles around you know privacy via security in 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 the recent history, right? And eventually, the law enforcement agencies and the regulators they understand the technology and they understand how to to sort of migrate their tactics and and enforce uh, enforce you know the the, the the regulation and the rules that I think are important to all of us. Uh, in a way that is native to that technology. Um, I just think that this takes time, right? Okay. Well, uh, talking of financial criminals, um, one of the things that put institutions off coming into this market earlier was, of course, the, the stories they read about uh, hacks on uh, cryptocurrency exchanges. Now, those were mainly inside jobs. They're mainly a thing of the past now. Um, I was interested to read in the CypherTrace report that DeFi has now become the major target of financial criminals in the last year or so, mainly because of, of weaknesses in smart contract coding. And anyway, their conclusion is that DeFi is now the major vulnerability in cryptocurrencies. What does that mean for institutional investors of the type you'll be serving? Yeah, so, you know, we've actually put a lot of effort into DeFi in the last couple of uh, months. Um, this is very applicable to a subset of our customer base. It's basically most of the hedge funds and the prop traders that are fairly comfortable with, uh, you know, dealing with, uh, uh, with, with, with DeFi and entering into those protocols. Uh, the vulnerabilities in the smart contracts, uh, which... Um, by the way, not all of them are, there is something which is quite unique over there that in many, many of the cases, it's actually not a, a, a traditional code vulnerability. It's more, there is a financial logic exploits in, in terms of how they behave under extreme market conditions, such as like flash loans and, and basically sort of like stretch conditions that suddenly the, the underlying market or the underlying um, asset doesn't behave as they would expect. And that allows basically uh, an attacker to cash out uh, a huge amount of uh, assets. Um, so it's quite interesting. I mean, the, the type of things that we're seeing over there. Uh, overall, there are firms that are focused on auditing and, and you know, providing stretch tests on the smart contracts. But look, everything said, DeFi is a very experimental space right now, right? Anyone who is basically uh, playing in that space, including a lot of our customers, is very familiar with the risks that they're taking and their investors are familiar with the risks that they're taking. There are huge rewards over there, but I don't think that the banks uh, that uh, are basically like, you know, the layer part of the people that we are servicing uh, is... Uh, rushing into DeFi uh, with, you know, huge amount of AUM tomorrow morning. Mm -hmm. You touched on this in, your, in, in some of your earlier remarks about the, the human factor. And, you know, as we've learned from conventional markets, you know, the, the rogue employee, the colluding employee, the fat finger, the USB stick, the email attachment, um, and simply the inadequate internal process, lack of um, four eyes, if you like. Um, do all those factors also apply to, to digital assets? Yeah, I, one would argue that more than anything else, right? Uh, I think that in general, as our life become more and more digital, right? Um, and that's like across the board. And I think over the last year, clearly there was a, a huge transformation. Uh, we sort of discover more and more, I think, how 
the human nature is not always uh, you know adjusted to how digital works right and uh, that goes back to people there there is a there is a joke in cybersecurity that uh, where uh, the human uh, a, a human being is a computer that uh, when presented with a question should i open it yes or no is a machine that will always press yes <laughs> so so uh, that's uh, that's just like the nature of uh, of, of people. Uh, one thing that I should probably make comment, and this is just my philosophical view on cybersecurity and and uh, how uh, IT is being developed. Um, the way that IT was developed over, like let's say, like you know, in the last two decades, is that it was uh, very sort of technocentric and and. Uh, and because it was very technocentric, it, it actually created a lot of those pitfalls that uh, people basically fall from cybersecurity or just errors and things like that, right? Um, and uh, I think that like over the last uh, five, six years, we've seen a, a fairly strong commercial, basically consumerization of that. Um, the people that done it the best is probably Apple, right? With the iPhone that most people that they have iPhone, they don't really think about security Apple basically bakes security into their platform. Apple bakes a lot of the uh, issues that you can basically ex be exposed on Windows machines or Android devices and things like that. They've done a really good job in creating a technology and creating a product where as a human being, there is like very little room for you to make mistakes, right? They still have a lot of work to do over there. Nothing is perfect, but they sort of showed us that you can actually create a secure infrastructure. And our philosophy in Fireblocks, and I think that this is, something that people that are actually operating in our asset class, they, be, they need to be very mindful of, that at the end of the day, we need to be continuously thinking about how do we create this infrastructure secure by design, right? When it's being shipped from the factory or shipped by the developer, it is secure. It doesn't allow people to do things that they will regret later on because you know they didn't notice what they were asked for. When your when your technology goes out into the marketplace, you you yourself have used the term subnetworks. We're talking here of networks of networks of subnetworks of subnetworks. You've got exchanges, custodians, market makers, investors, and so on. So you've got data and value, you know, sloshing around the, these networks all the time. And it's when something it moves that it creates vulnerability, presumably. What are the what are the limits on actually? preventing assets being, I mean, this is the heart of your business, really. Um, how much of your time and, and money and, and thinking it goes into trying to control those movements, if you like, the, the actual point of the transaction? Well, I think 99% of our time is being spent there. Uh, this, is the, this is at the end of the day, the, the, the point of vulnerability, right? Of uh, not, uh, I mean, there are, I mean, maybe 99% is a bit over exaggeration because there are, other things around resiliency, backup, and so on that are, are, are critical to, but at the end of the day, the, the most critical gate is eventually just a second before the asset moved, right? Because when it moved, there is no recourse. So the amount of technology that we have over there in order to basically validate, put the, rail, put the guardrails in to make sure that it goes to the right place, but also to put the guardrails that from an insider standpoint, uh, we are making sure that an insider cannot interact with it. There is a, a workflow that there are that 
our customers can program multiple steps in terms of how this is approved. And there is not only a single, there is not only no single point of failure from an IT standpoint, but also there is no single point of failure from a human standpoint or from a process standpoint. This is the vast majority of where we invest our technology and innovation in, in terms of creating uh, a lot of different uh, multi-factor authentication, in terms of enforcing it in hardware, in terms of uh, creating a robust policy engines that people can program to, to the way that they work. Now, you use the term there, no recourse. Is there no recourse? We, we've talked in the past about burning assets, effectively cancelling mistakes, if you like. Is that not an option? That's an option in security. That's open, That's an option in tokenized assets. So on tokenized assets, you do have recourse, but clearly like, you know, something like a, a native cryptocurrency such as Bitcoin, that's just the Don't virtue of, uh, of the idea, right? So um, scalability, that's been another long-standing concern of institutional investors. Has that challenge been overcome now? Uh, yes. Yes, so uh, I think that, I mean, depends on what layer. I think in, in the custody layer, in the settlement layer, it, it, it was overcome. Uh, there is still scalability issues on the blockchain layer itself in terms of how many transactions uh, a blockchain can clear. But again, we have the brightest minds that are currently working on that. And I think that the, at the end of the day, Bitcoin aside, right, when you look at all the other protocols, whether it's ETH2 or Polkadot or Algorand or Stellar or Ripple, um, at the end of the day, this is all a race to scalability, right? This is all a race to who will be the, fir who will be the first protocol that will create a very scalable and decentralized network that can operate in the transactions per second in a TPS that uh, traditional finance is currently working at in a centralized form. Now, I said at the outset, you're sitting on top of a volcano. You're now starting to see private banks, wealth managers, asset managers, and corporate treasurers uh, starting to invest in, in, in a relatively narrow range, but are investing in, in cryptocurrencies. Do you, what sort of credit do you think that uh, the cybersecurity pessimists like yourselves can take for that development? How large does cybersecurity loom in the minds of these organizations investing in crypto? I think it's significant, you know, I mean, it depends when you, when you look at uh, all kinds of service and report, you always see cybersecurity as either like the second or third uh, question that people have or concern, right? I think the fact that we were able to create trust and we can, we, would, we were able to create the ease of use for those institutions is a major factor. I think there is also a chicken and the egg over there, right? The fact that we didn't, we don't see a huge exchange being breached on the, every, you know, uh, every afternoon, it's uh, it's definitely part of what allows the the market to to go up, right? Um, I still remember the days every every time that there was a hack, the market would tumble. Yeah. One last question for you. Uh, you you used the phrase a minute ago about race to scalability. I I sometimes when I think about cybersecurity, it feels like a red queen race in which you're running very fast to stand still. You're in this constant evolutionary battle between uh, cybersecurity specialists and, and hackers. What do you, what's your secret to, to actually keeping ahead or at least ensuring you're able to stand still um, yeah. in relation to the hacking community? 
So this is some, this is an approach that we're definitely taking here at Fireblocks. This is a project we took uh, in my previous company, and I think that philosophically, this is the approach that you see with the successful cybersecurity company, is that your ability to think like a hacker and your ability to continuously learn the hackers and how they change changing their um, their procedures, right, tactics and procedures, right. I mean, probably the most fascinating thing about cybersecurity is that it's sort of an ever-evolving space, right? You are not facing a technology, you're not facing a performance bottleneck, you're facing a real opponent that uh, is on the other side of the ocean, right? Sitting, or maybe like he's in the building next to you, right? You don't know, but uh, they, uh, they, they're basically thinking about it in the same way that uh, you are. Um, I think the main, one of the biggest advantages of, uh, that our team have is that we have a lot of capacity of people that understand offensive uh, cybersecurity back on, based on their military background and, and intelligence background. And also the fact that they spend a lot of time in, in, uh, in uh, working for cybersecurity uh, companies, you know, Israel is considered to be the cyber nation. And uh, you know, the, the, there is a huge amount of talent that we pull out of over there. Uh, and the second aspect, which is just continuous learning, right? So we continuously monitor and learn what hackers are doing in this space. And we sort of stress test ourselves against their most recent tactics. And we challenge ourselves if the ideas and the concept that we've engineered yesterday are still valid for today. And if they're not, uh, we have a framework of how we mutate and, and, and adjust to them. Michael Shulam, thank you very much. Thank you, Dominic.